Good morning, King's Chapel. Still morning. Summer series we're in this uh, today and for the next several weeks until summer's over. A little different from normally. We normally go through books of the Bible. If you're new here, we do expository preaching. We start in a book and we finish when we get to the end, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's called expository preaching, drawing out the meaning of the text from the text. Uh, It's a safer and much better way of rightly interpreting the scripture, hearing the voice of God. Um, I do believe that as a church we do that consistently and regularly and therefore as we take breaks we do some um, topical preaching, um, it's much easier to stay on track, kind of uh, much easier I think to rightly understand the scripture and, and to interpret it rightly even though we're doing topical. Topical usually you pick a topic, you go to the scripture can be kind of dangerous. What we do is let the scripture speak for itself, but not totally inappropriate as we will do today. We'll keep things in its context. Uh, at least that's what we're trying to do. We started the book, the, book, the Gospel According to John, last year uh, in September. We worked all the way through June. We're in chapter 10. The invisible made visible is what we are calling it. We'll resume September 18th in chapter 10. This summer we're doing a series. Did God really say that? Seven and cliches, advice, well-intended instruction that people say that may or may not really be in the scripture, may or may not be what God really said. That's why we say, did God really say that? Some of those questions, like today, have a smidgen of truth. There's, there's something about it that's true, but we need to define the question. We need to understand terminology, and we need to separate that which is true and that which is false. So far, did God really say that? He won't give us more than we can handle. We said, did God really say that he helps those who help themselves? Did God really say that he wants us happy, wealthy, and healthy? Last week, Pastor Ricky did a great job. Did God really say that we are all children of his? So as we continue this morning, we're going to show this video, then I'll dismiss the kids. We're going to continue this morning. Let's ask the question, did God really say that? Lights. <laughs> Pastor Ricky and his creativity, yeah. I'm picking on Chris Cajano that way, I'm not really sure, but sorry, Chris. Uh, kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church, and I want to tell you a story as the children are dismissed. The story's about a parakeet. Maybe you heard this story before. His name was Chippy. Chippy never saw it coming. It all started when Chippy's owner decided to clean his birdcage with the vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment, stuck the hose inside the vacuum cleaner, 
And the phone rang. She turned to grab the phone, didn't get very far, barely said hello, and Chippy got sucked into the vacuum cleaner. The bird owner panicked, freaked out, dropped the phone, ran over to the vacuum cleaner, shut it off, opened the bag, pulled out Chippy, and he was still alive. A little stunned, but alive. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and she, she ran to the bathroom and turned on the faucet and stuck him under the water and began to wash him off. And realizing he was soaked and he's freezing and shivering. And she did what any compassionate, caring bird owner would do. She broke out the hairdryer. And she blasted him with hot air. He never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who initially reported this incident called Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. And the owner picked up the phone and said, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits around and stares. I mean, what else is there to do when you're, you know, sucked in, washed up and blown over? But many of you can relate to Chippy this morning. Most of us can at some point in our life. going about life. One minute, everything's going well, minding your own business, familiar surroundings, singing a song, and bam, the boss calls you. I need to see you in the morning. You could be without a job. The doctor calls and he wants to see you. Nope, he has not given you any information on the phone. He wants to see you tomorrow. A policeman knocks at your door. Maybe a child calls you. Middle of the night crying, you know something's wrong. You get sucked into a dark and dirty bag of doubt. You're extinguished with this cold water of reality and you are blasted with a hot air of hurt. Life can be that way. It's calm. And then all of a sudden, bad things happen. Bad things happen. Somewhere in the storm, you're losing your song. One of the things about here at King's Chapel is we talk about suffering. We talk about it because in Scripture, many people face the realities of this broken world. You cannot look at Scripture and deal with bad things happening. And the question today is, does bad things happen to good people? Is that proper to say? What does it mean? Well, in 1981, a rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner, some of you may know him, 1981 is before some of your birthdays, but that's okay, 1981, it's a popular book, you can pick it up today, I'm sure, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, sold millions of copies, it was a personal reflection of this rabbi, a conservative rabbi, whose son came down with a, a terrible disease and wind up losing his life, and this period of intense personal pain Uh, him and his wife going through this pain wrote this book. He wrote this book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And because he's examining this question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's the question. That's the name of the book. It was received very well. In fact, it was well written. And I think it connected with a lot of people because a lot of people have gone through some very, in fact, all of us at some point in life will go through some very hard times. Sooner or later, You'll ask the question in the midst of pain, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Unfortunately, though, the, ra- the, the, the conservative rabbi identifies with human sufferings, but he does not in his book present a biblical view uh, of suffering in any real resolve in the book. 
And please hear me this morning. If this is going to be a heavy sermon, it's about bad things that happen. I'm not trying to explain real pain away. I'm not. I'm not going to try to give you some patsy, complete answer why stuff happens because I don't understand, I don't think you do, the infinite mind of God. But that does not mean that God has not revealed it to himself, himself in Scripture about trials and the bad stuff that does happen in this world. Actually, God has revealed enough of himself in his word. The revelation of God, how we come to know him and love him. He revealed enough in his word of himself and his plans for us to have hope in the midst of hardship, in the midst of bad things, in the midst of trials when bad stuff happens. The Apostle Paul wrote to the persecuted church of Rome in chapter 15. He said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's deal with this question. Let's deal with this idea. Why does bad things happen to good people? Is it right to say bad things happen to good people? Four headings, if you're taking notes. Um, number one, bad things happen. We'll look at that. Bad things happen to obedient people. Bad things happen to people in bad decisions. I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but we can give testimony, right? Bad things don't happen to good people. And I'll explain. Number one. Bad things happen. Suffering hurts, hurts deeply. To trust God in the midst of suffering does not take away the pain. Even when we hold on to Christ, it still hurts. Losing a child, getting sick, spouse walking out on you, parents disowning you, accidents, and on and on and on and on we can go. Please don't be one of those Christians that are hurting deep and think, I shouldn't feel this way. If you don't feel hurt and pain, if you don't feel trouble in your soul, there's something else going on. It was Epicurus, about two, three hundred years before Christ, and more recently in the 19th century, a philosopher by the name of David Hume asked this question, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. then is he, if not, that's not the case. So is he able to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he is malevolent, wanting evil and wishing evil. Some people ask the question this way. When we talk about bad things happen to good people, either God is good and not all-powerful and can't stop evil, or God is all-powerful, doesn't stop evil because he's not good. You see the logic there. That's the argument. That's, that's the, 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 the way in which people approach this question. Again, I'm not going to have all the answers for you. I'm not going to get into it with you. Thousands of people have tried. But my hope this morning is, as we think about and think through the Scripture and the deeper things of God, that in the midst of hardship, in the midst of deep pain, you can have hope. The Scriptures are clear. Family, listen. God is always good. There is no shadow, there is no evil, there is no darkness in him at all. God is also omnipotent, all-powerful, that although evil and brokenness have some rule on this earth, God overrules it 
supremely. I believe that with my whole heart. When you see God's power and goodness, my hope today is that you will love him more, you will trust him more, you will cling to him more. I will never claim to understand completely the infinite mind of God. Why a family of four, of six, just a week ago, on their way from Interstate 80, from Minnesota to Palm, Palmer Lake, Colorado, on their way to a five-week-long session to learn the Japanese culture, to learn the Japanese language, to live on mission in Japan, demonstrating, declaring the gospel to a people that don't know Jesus and then get killed on the way a week ago. Jameson and Catherine Powell's, 29 years old, children Ezra 3, Violet almost 2, and a two and a half month old Calvin died Sunday. I believe it was Sunday. Really bad stuff happens to everyone. But if God is all-knowing and he's all-powerful, and he is, there must be something in the mind and the heart and the purpose of God that we can never understand. His character, his nature, his purposes. It's a mystery. But they just don't come out of nowhere. Last week, Pastor Ricky talked about how God created us in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. In a perfect world, no sin, no evil. Our creative God in love created us out of his fullness and his goodness. He didn't need us to bear his image, for us to bear his image, to display his glory to the world. And God created and only what's known to him permits sin to enter into the world. But what he has made known to us is that he allowed brokenness, he allowed sin into the world, but he restrains it and bends it for his and uses it for his eternal purposes, a declaration of his glory. Psalm 72, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. The scriptures teach us clearly that God is sovereign. Even... Bad decisions, sinful actions, natural disasters are in the hands of God. Remember, we're talking about an eternal God. There are things that we won't understand. To think that we don't understand them, and therefore they can't be understood, is just putting yourself in the place of God. Pastor Ricky, again, talked last week about creation in Genesis 1 and 2. How in Genesis 3, Adam's sin caused all of mankind to be separated from God. You guys Okay. Genesis 1 and 2, and how God creates shalom, perfect, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, Adam's sin, all of mankind to be, is to be separated from God, moral evil exists, comes into the world, every woman, every man born after Adam has been born with a sinful nature and choice children of wrath, subjects to the justice of God, rebelled against him, rightly deserving his judgment. Pastor Ricky rightly said, this doesn't mean that we are wrathful people and we're angry all the time, but that as a result of sin, the position of man before God, apart from Christ, are recipients of his wrath. Adam's sin in Genesis 3 brings brokenness, sin into the world, physical, spiritual, psychological, emotional, relational disintegration. Not only moral sin, But the whole world 
is now caught up in that curse. Look at Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground. This is the curse of Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Creation subject to the curse. And we see that today. We see hurricanes. We see tsunamis. We see volcanoes and mudslides. All kinds of various different environmental disasters. Paul, again, wrote in Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subject to futility. Not willingly, but because of him, that's God, who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. It's in bondage. Corruption. And will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Bad stuff happens. And yes, in part, as a result of the fact that we live in a sinful, broken, jacked up world. Jesus said in John 16, and we'll get there. Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, trials. But, take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. The promise of Christ is that this world, both humanity and the creative order, that is broken and twisted, will not stay that way. As children of God, we have the absolute promise in God's word that sin will not prevail, disease and brokenness will not have the final say. Bad things will not be the end. And that someday God will restore in perfect harmony, all of creation. Now, God speaking that into existence in his word or speaking that to us, giving us that promise is more than enough. Amen? But the empty tomb seals the case. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty... Because Jesus lived a perfect life, he died an atoning death, he was buried and he rose from the grave, it is proof positive that all of creation will be restored. Listen carefully to the word of God this morning. Let it soak into your heart. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also, with Jesus, bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. It is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Why? So that we do not lose heart. He who raised Jesus from the dead will bring us into his presence. His grace is extending into thanksgiving. Don't lose heart. Though outerly or through our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. He does not mean that you shouldn't have deep pain. He's comparison. And look, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Bad stuff happens. We live in a broken world. But God is sovereign. Suffering will not have its final day. It will not have its last day. God will have his last say in suffering. Bad things happen. Yes, in part because we are in a broken world. Bad things happen. Next. Bad things happen to obedient people. There, there are times when bad things happen that have no correlation right to your actions. I wish I could sit here and tell you as long as you're obedient to Christ, as long as you walk in the will of God, as long as you do what's right, everything will go fine. Everything will go fine. But the scriptures teach us that that's not the case. There are numerous, numerous scriptures where people are doing the right thing, but God bad results. They not do anything to deserve the bad things that are happening to them. In fact, right in the middle, back in the middle of May, we looked at chapter 9 of John. If you remember, Jesus is passing by. He's leaving the temple, and he sees a man born blind. And the disciples come up to him, and because it was the, the, the thought of the day, he said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right? That's what Job's friend said. You did something, man. God is mad at you. But we learn from John 9 is that there are times that suffering comes, brokenness comes, bad things happen. Although it's part of a broken world, it's not connected to anything we did or anything to our parents did. Anyone else did. It's part of this world. It's simply because we live in the broken world. In fact, Jesus says in John 9, 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Bad stuff happens sometimes when you're just sitting on your perch, man, singing a song. Minding your own business, born that way. But it also happens in the midst of obediently serving, hearing the call of God, doing what God clearly is commanding you to do, like that family on the way from Minnesota. You could be in the middle of doing right, the will of God, the call of God in your life, and bad stuff happens. In fact, count on it. If you remember in our study of John 2, also as well, John comes to his disciples and says, get in the boat, I'm staying, you guys go. And he pushes the boat out into the lake and he says, I'll meet you in a little while. And what happens next? A huge storm comes. Job, Joseph, in the midst of doing what's right, face trials and hard things that happen to them. Right? Remember Joseph? His brothers jacked him up, plotted against him, threw him in a pit, sold him to slavery. He gets hired by Potiphar, gets placed. It says, the Bible actually says, the hand of the Lord was upon him, and he gets placed in a prominent position in his house. And what happens? The wife sees him and says, ooh, that's a nice, handsome guy. He's alone in the house, and she tries to grab him, takes sexual advances toward him. And he did what every godly man should do, Run. She grabs his cloak. She grabs his clothes. The husband comes home. He tried to rape me. She lied. And he finds himself in prison. Job and Joseph, two people doing the will of God, two people serving and doing what God wants them to do, are two stories that show us that God permits evil, God permits brokenness, suffering, in the midst of doing the right thing. Now, family, I want you to... This is a perfect time. I think it's the pack.
Sorry, everybody. Check one, two. Check one, two. Good. There we go. Job, Joseph, teach us that God allows and permits suffering and difficulties while doing the right thing. And I want you to hear this. And I want that, so I'm glad it was good timing, because I want you to hear this, family. Listen. Permitting evil and bad things to happen does not imply passivity. You got that? Permitting evil, God permitting evil and bad things to happen does not imply passivity. God's permissive ruling does not imply a passive permission of something that is not under his sovereign control. Moving toward his eternal purposes. It's not that God goes, ah, hmm, all right, I got to try to fix that. Or, you know what, I'm going to turn the other way. That's not sovereignty. Let me give you three things. Suffering for obedient people. Let me give you three things. I have them there for you. We'll hit them quickly. God is sovereign, number one. We've been talking about that. God is sovereign. I refuse to believe Rabbi Kushner, nothing against him personally. Please understand that, being a rabbi or anything like that. I refuse to believe anyone that will conclude that God may not be really in control. I refuse to believe that. I think the scriptures speak totally against that. 30 times in the book of Job alone, God is referred as El Shaddai, Almighty God, Omnipotent God, All-Sufficient God, Powerful, All-Powerful, and Sovereign. In 30 times in the book of Job alone. In the book of Job, it is seen clearly that God is sovereign over angels. God is sovereign over demons. Yeah, he lets Satan wreak havoc, but he says, this is as far as you will go. He is seen to have supernatural abilities, but he ain't all-powerful. Only God is. He has dominion over angels. He has dominion over Satan. Job 12 says God raises up nations and destroys nations. Okay? Let's get political. I don't care what happens in November. God is still God. I don't care who is our president. Jesus is Lord, ruler of the universe. He will raise up nations. He will destroy nations. My hope is in Christ alone. Sorry about that. <laughs> sovereign over nations. Sovereign over angels. Sovereign over demons. Sovereign over, the, 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 over the nature. He calls Job in chapter 38 and says, Stand up, man. Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I put water in the sky? Where were you when I had the snow ready to go? The answer is, uh, Nowhere. He's sovereign over disease. When Job is afflicted with swords, it's not Satan who has the ultimate power over Job's health. It's God. Job teaches us that God is sovereign over life, death, angels, demons, nations, nature, disease. And let me add, God is sovereign over the blessings you have. All that Job was given was given by Almighty God. Number two, God is purposeful. Joseph... I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but Joseph had a rough life. Joseph had a lot of things happen to him. But at the end of his life, at the end of the story of Genesis, let me give you one verse. Puts everything in perspective. Comes from the lips of Joseph himself. Hardship, beat up, dragged, beaten, thrown in a pit, sent off to prison, uh, lied about, and on and on. This is from Joseph himself. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He's saying to his brothers who were 
mean and wicked. As for you, evil brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. What did, listen, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for my good. The meaning that you had, the evil that you did, you meant for my bad. God took that, wasn't passive, didn't go, oh, let me look, let me try something else. He took that which was meant for evil, he took it and meant it for the good. It says here, right here in this scripture, you meant it against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The whole nation was spared through the suffering wrongly in Joseph. And you say, well, if God is so good and God is so perfect, then God does not, is not evil in him. How does he do that? I don't know. Here's my answer. But I know what the scripture teaches. God is good. There is no evil. And God, in his all-powerful, uses it for his own glory and his own purposes. Gotta have a, uh, somehow you've got to have a category of that in your brain. To get through scripture. He has a purpose. It's his glory. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Romans 8.18 the ultimate purposes of God is to display His glory, His incalculable worth. And Paul says there's suffering and there's glory, and you put them side by side, all the suffering doesn't compare to the infinite glory of Christ, our finite glory of spending eternity with Him. Now, it doesn't mean our pain goes away. Oh, you know what? I don't feel any pain because of that. No. That's not, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying... In comparison, if you're going to compare, if you put your hardships and trials on your life, in your life, that are going on side by side in the scale, and the glory that someday will be revealed, will be revealed on the other side, the glory blows it away. That's what he's saying. Radical perspective on life. Radical change in thinking. And if you have that, you'll look at suffering differently. Also, what's the last one? God increases our faith. Okay, God increases our faith. Suffering, suffering through when you're obedient, even when you're obedient, increases our faith and increases our reliance upon Christ. First Peter 1, we went through this, we went through First Peter. Paul, uh, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Family, in a little while, maybe 60 years, but compared to eternity, it's a little while. That's what he said. In a little while, you have been grieved with various trials so that the testing or that the tested genuineness of your faith, the trial is to test the genuineness of your faith that's more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire. He says that it may be found in result, to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul says there's gold that's purified, it's, it's burned, and all the impurities come out of it, and you've got pure gold. Same thing with your faith. When you go through uh, uh, difficulties, he, he purges the unbelief, the lack of trust, the self-reliance, the pride in our lives, all gets burned away so that our faith our genuineness of our faith can emerge. There is steadfastness, there is confidence in God. And you know, sometimes the hotter the fire, the more pure the gold. And I've met a lot of people in my days, I've been Christian almost 30 years, the ones who have been tested the most seem to be the one the closest with Jesus. Testing of your faith. 
Remember also a couple of weeks ago, and I won't get into this, let me just mention, not only is it increased our faith, but Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, chapter 1, verse, um, verse 9. Paul's like, I went through all this hardship, and Paul said, listen, the reason, not to rely upon ourselves, but on God. Suffering family, let's be honest, bad things happen to us, drives us to lean on God, Right? We learn in suffering to have hope, to be settled in our confidence, looking forward to the future of Christ, all His promises. We learn patience. We learn perseverance, qualities that we would never gain any other way but through trials in our life. And God is using, like He did with Joseph, the bad things in our lives to bring us to the place where we are weaned from selfness, selfishness, self-righteousness, self-reliance, and putting our hope in Him and Him alone. He brings us to the place where we say, You are all I have. You are all I have. I must rely only on you. Bad stuff happens, strips away self-sufficiency, and reveals helplessness. And we cry out with Paul, we say, in suffering... Lord, take this from me. But if not, your grace is sufficient for me. My power is made perfect, the Lord says, in, in, in weakness. I'd rather boast about it. So, yeah. Bad things happen to all of us in a broken world. Bad things happen to the obedient. And let's, let's hit this one. We'll hit this rather quickly. But let's, let's say bad things happen. Go to the next slide. Yeah, here we go. Bad things happen when we do stupid things. Everybody? Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a promise, just wait. No, we don't feel like waiting. We're going to have our own promised son. Ishmael's born from Hagar. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, there are a lot of you that are selfish. There are a lot of you that are disrespectfully coming to the community table, drinking wine, getting drunk, and filling your tummy. And that's why some of you are dead. God took him. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 lied to the Holy Spirit in the community of God's people about the offering and how much money they were giving to the church. The following week, it tripled. But that week, Ananias, done. God told Moses, listen, you're my man. You're bringing them out of slavery. You're into the promised land. I only want you to speak to that rock. And out of anger, what did he do? He hit the rock. God brings him up to the promised land and says, take a look. I'm almost like, you know, I'd rather not see it. But the Lord says, take a look. Moses takes a peek. Beautiful plush fishing ponds, deer hunting. I mean, beautiful. God's like, great, you're not going. Bad things happen when we do dumb things. A couple stories. Paul Stiller, 47. Him and his wife were hospitalized in Andover Township in New Jersey. His wife Bonnie and him were both injured because they had a quarter stick of dynamite that blew up in his car. While driving around at 2 a.m. bored, the couple lit the dynamite and tried to toss it out the window, but they forgot to roll down the window. <laughs> True story. From England, a motorist was caught speeding through a trap. And they took a photograph of his car and sent him a ticket and said, you owe us 40 pounds for your 
Fine. Instead of a payment, he took a picture of the money and sent it in. A few days later, he got a letter from the police officers and the police department. He opened up and it was a picture of handcuffs. He paid the fine. One more. Drug, this is a true story. Drug possession defendant Christopher Jansen on trial in Pontiac, Michigan. He's been searched and he claims now at the court that he's been searched without a warrant. And the prosecutor jumped up and said the officer didn't need a warrant. He saw a bulge in Christopher's jacket and it could have been a gun. And he said to the judge, that is nonsense. He said, I'm worth wearing the same jacket. He took off the jacket and gave it to the judge. The judge reached in the pocket and pulled out a bag of cocaine. He was laughing so hard it said he required a five-minute recess to compose himself. Right? If you rob a bank and get shot, don't blame the police. If your liver fails because Jim Bean is your morning breakfast, don't blame your mom. You know what I mean? Bad things happen when we do dumb things. And finally, bad things don't happen to good people. Let's decipher, what does it mean? Bad things happen, that's our question, or that's our saying, bad things happen to good people. What does that really mean? Oftentimes, the phrase we use, behind bad things happen to good people, my argument's going to be that we are using a false and deceptive view of humanity. Good things happen, bad things happen to good people is a false view of humanity, of our worldview. It's a false worldview. Oftentimes, many times, what is really being said is that we have good deeds, the works, the kindness, how people treat one another, the good deeds, the works, their moral behaviors should have stopped, should have stopped, and should have prevented and should have protected me or anyone from having bad things happen in my life. Bad things happen to good people. Here's the problem. The scripture says there is no one good, no, not one. And some of you never heard that before. You're welcome. There's no good. No, not one. Now, I'm not saying there aren't any good people in the sense of, of there are some kind people. Some of you are very kind. Some of you aren't, but that's okay. There's some are that are. Some of you are compassionate. Some of you are a caring people. Right? Passionate and giving. There are a lot of folks like that. But that is not what is going on when people think bad stuff happens to good people. In their mind, there's this cosmic scale. Let's be honest. When people say bad things happen to good people, there's this cosmic scale. On one side, all my kindness, all my compassion, all my deeds, all my niceness, helping the lady across the street, opening the door. The other side, bad stuff. And somehow God was sleeping and didn't know that the scale was like this with all my good stuff. Why do this happen to me then? Why does this happen to me? It, 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 my good deeds are outweighing my bad deeds. So why does good stuff, bad stuff happen to good people? But that's not what the scriptures teach. That's not the biblical meaning of being good in, 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 in comparing ourselves to our good deeds scale. Let me illustrate it for you. There's a man by the name of Vody Bachman. He's a pastor from the nation of Texas, or I should say the state of Texas. He goes to a college campus, and he runs into a guy who's a first-year student in philosophy. And he asks Vody Bachman, uh, Dr. Bachman, if you believe in a God who is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, how do you reconcile the issue of theodicy? 
Okay, the Odyssey is a fancy way to say justifying God's goodness and the evil. Vody Boxman's response was, uh, you took a semester of philosophy, right? How did you know? He said, because anybody would just simply ask, if God is so good, if God is so powerful, why does bad stuff happen? He says, but you know what, son? I'm not going to answer that question until you ask it correctly. The student said, hey, man, I've been working on that question all week long. What do you mean, ask the question correctly? Dr. Bachman said, you're not asking the question properly. Of which the student responded, you, you can't tell me how to ask my question. It's my question. If God is so good, if God is so good, if he's omnipotent and omnivalent, how can you reconcile the issue of his evil? Vodi says this. I will answer your question when you ask it properly. When you look me in the eyes and ask me this, how on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and thought and said yesterday and not kill me in my sleep at night? You ask it that way and we can talk. But until you ask it that way, you don't understand the issue. Until you ask the question that way, you believe the problem is out there somewhere. You believe that there are some individuals who, in and of themselves, deserve nothing other than the wrath of Almighty God. When you ask me the question that way, when you say it that way, why is that we are here today and not consumed and devoured? Why, oh God, he says, does your judgment and your wrath tarry? Ask me that way and you'll know the issue. He says one way is the supremacy of man and the other way is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of man, he says, says it like this. And it kind of goes along with this question here. The supremacy of man asks the question is, how dare God not employ his power on behalf of almighty man? I bring that up to challenge you of your worldview. Because how you perceive God and this world, the meaning of life itself has a huge impact on how you view suffering and hardship and trial and bad stuff that happens. If man is at the center of the universe, deserving blessings in and of himself, then suffering will be very hard to deal with and process. Unless we see our sin and our utter helplessness and our deserved wrath and then see the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God, you'll never find joy in the midst of suffering. Paul said it this way, if you don't believe me. What then? Are we Jews any better? Not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. It's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, the throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venoms of ass is under their lips. Well, pastor, I'm so nice. I'm so kind, I'm so warm, I'm so friendly. Here's the problem. The scale is not good deeds and bad stuff. The cosmic scale is perfect righteousness, perfect law-keeping, perfect purity, and perfect holy. And there's only one that is good, and that's Jesus. That's it. That's the scale. The question really is, why does good things happen to sinful people, but why does God's grace 
And his kindness and his love in the gospel come to such broken, sinful people. One, our culture is moving away. It is such a promotion of, of humanity and a, a, a decelerating of God that that's going to sound strange to some of you. But that's what the scriptures teach. That's what the scriptures teach. The standard is holiness. The only one who tipped that scale is Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect one. Now, I want to end. If you have a Bible, open with me to Romans 8. I have, I have some of the verses up here. Remember what I said earlier. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, chapter 8, verse 18, Paul said, I consider the suffering, that's the context, I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That's, that's chapter 8, verse 18. I'm, I'm talking about suffering, I'm considering suffering not worth comparing to the glory that will come. Now, as God's people, we press on, verse 18, and we press on to verse 28, and we are assured, absolutely assured, verse 28, that we can know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not all things are good, but all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his what? Purpose. What's his purpose? For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God is working his glory, our transformation to look more like Jesus. That's what it says. That's the purpose. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Sometimes when we're in trials and difficulties, that's what we think. God's against us. God doesn't like me. I did something wrong. You may be right walking in the will of God. No one, he says, no one. If God is for us, no one can be against us. No difficulty, no trial, no hardship. Nothing could be against you when God is for you. In the gospel. You understand that? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not? Also with him, Graciously give us all things. Think about that. Pastor, we want, to, we want to take your daughter from you and we want to sacrifice her life so that so-and-so can live. No, they're dying. I'm telling you the truth. But if somehow you convinced me and I gave up one of my children so that you could live and then you came to me and said, listen, we want her clothes, I'm going to think, what? That would mean nothing to me. That don't mean nothing to me. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is for us. No one is against us. No hardship, no trial, nothing. He gave his own son. The promises of God, eternal life, the future with Christ, that's our hope. That's our promise. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against the elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Bad stuff happens to sinful people, but because of the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus on the cross, no one can hold the charge against you. No one. Romans 8.1. There, there, there is therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, the only one that could bring... A, Condemnation and judgment against you is God Almighty. And God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, comes to this sinful, broken world, lives a perfect life, dies an atoning death in our place, absorbing the wrath, takes our place, dies as our substitute, takes our sin, goes into the grave, and rises three days later. Look what it says. He now he's at the right hand of the Father. When we sin, he lays the portfolio of Good Friday before the Father. 
No double jeopardy. Either he paid for our sins or he didn't. Father, you sinned, I paid for it. No longer will judgment come to him, a condemnation come to him. I have paid. And then, in the portfolio, it is finished, right? Verse 35. Look at verse 35. Two more minutes. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, this is, this is, we're talking back in verse 18. This is suffering, and Paul picks it up again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, any kind of trial? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, rulers, nothing present, powers, height, depth, or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, bad things happen in our broken world. Yes, bad things happen to the obedient. Yes, bad things happen when we do stupid things. Bad things happen to those who don't deserve God's love. But the cross and the gospel is that God's love and grace comes to us by His mercy and His grace. He saves us and loves us. And it says... Jesus is the answer. So I'm going to say this. Bad things happen to good people. No, not that kind of good. But I will say this. The worst evil that ever happened, happened to the most perfect person. It's called the gospel. He allowed the ultimate bad thing to happen to the only good person so that you and I could say, I am his, he is mine, nothing will separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And let me tell you, there is not a suffering you go through that can compare to that weight of glory. Nothing. For he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to end with a story. His name is Horatio Spofford, a wealthy Chicago lawyer. Had a beautiful home, four daughters and a son, devout Christian. The height of his financial success, him and his wife lost their son. He died as a young boy. Shortly after that, October 8, 1971, the great Chicago fire happened and his business was devastated. Loss of a son, loss of, devast- loss of business. Two years later, this man is on his way or scheduled to go to Europe with his family, his four girls and his wife. He sends his family on ahead because he has to do a business transaction. He'll meet them there. Several days later, he receives a notice that the ship carrying his wife and his four daughters sunk, drowning and killing his four girls. Only his wife survived. With a heavy heart, Horatio Spofford aborted a boat that would take him to England to visit and see his grieving wife, Anna. It was on that trip, as he looked out over the ocean that had swallowed up his children, he wrote these words, When sorrow like sea billows roll, it is well, it is well with my soul. We're going to play that in a moment. But I'm going to tell you something. In the midst of that, do you know what comforted him more than anything? We know, because we have it. As he's looking out over the ocean, as he's remembering his children, son, four daughters that have drowned, his daughters have drowned, he wrote, and we're going to sing this, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. 
I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All of his sins, all of our sins have been swallowed up by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We are clean. We are clean. Difficulty, disease, trials, bad stuff is something we suffer. Broken world. We're not righteous people that deserve God's lollipops and blessing all the time. It is by grace and grace alone that he blesses his people. In the midst of it, in the midst of this jacked up world, we must recognize our utter helplessness and sinfulness. There is no one good but Jesus. Our greatest enemy has been swallowed up by Christ. The greatest enemy of sin, death, and hell, praise the Lord, has been taken care of on Calvary. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing, family, will separate us from the love of Christ. Love conquers all. Father, there are trials and difficulties that each of us face. And we all come to them with different thoughts and attitudes and perspectives, Lord. May we ask, Father, that you would give us the eyes to see the truth. The truth about our sinfulness and your grace and mercy. The truth about the glory that will be revealed. The truth that Paul cried out, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, I know that pain is part of living in this broken world, but I would ask you, Lord God, for those of us who are struggling, who are trying to to make sense of things, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them as only you can, that you would assure them of your love. And Father, that they would cling to you, run to you, worship you, and that Jesus Christ is enough.